Hey there, Damien Blinkinsop, your host here for another episode of The Quantified Body. We haven't been back for a little while, but we're going to be back with a bit of a vengeance and have more episodes coming out. Excuse me, I've been uh, hyper busy with a couple of businesses I'm running at the moment and got distracted. But this is my passion, this is my love, so I'm back and I'm here to stay. Today's topic is machine learning and artificial intelligence. These are topics which are discussed massively in investor entrepreneur circles and the media in general right now. And there is a trickle of that starting to move into the health tech area, health data area, not necessarily as much as some of the other areas that are going on, but there's a lot of potential discussion around what that could mean. So it was about time that we tackled this subject to see what potential it has to help make better use of all the data we're collecting on health. Now, I've been spending more time on the conference circuit around this topic and looking for tech that is adding value in this area, which means helping us make better decisions with less error and less effort on our part. This is the Health Data Podcast, and as you will have understood through listening to previous episodes, there are a lot of challenges today to getting actionable information and value out of today's health data. So machine learning promises to help us bridge that gap potentially. And this will be the first of doubtless many episodes where we look into the subject. And today is a bit of an intro, in fact, into the subject. Today's guests are the Nourish Balance Thrive team, Christopher Kelly and Tommy Wood. Chris and Tommy are friends of mine that I bump into often on the functional medicine conference circuit. Chris and Tommy run the Nourish Balance Thrive podcast and are constantly digging into functional medicine and related areas to see what they can extract to help athletes perform better. That's their focus area, helping athletes perform better. They've used the data they've collected over the last three years that they've been working with athletes as an input to a machine learning tool in order to cheaply predict what an athlete should prioritize working on in order to improve his or her performance. Now, this is, to my knowledge, the first time that machine learning has been applied to the area of functional medicine. You can run the test yourself to understand what we are talking about better by going to verquantifiedbody.net forward slash machine test. That's machine test, all one word. That will take you through a series of questions before predicting the issues that blood, urine, and stool tests would uncover for you without actually investing in those tests. So again, the URL to go to is verquantifiedbody.net forward slash machine test. Now you may notice that Tommy Wood disappears about two thirds of the way through the interview silently, but don't worry about this. This was all planned as he had another engagement that he had to get to. As always, we've got extensive show notes with all the actional takeaways, with the tests that were mentioned, the data that mentioned, and of course, the link to the test in question, the machine test. You can go and get all of that at thequantifiedbody.net and simply pick out today's episode from the selection there and you'll have those extensive show notes to use. If you want all of that in your email inbox in future so that you don't have to go there, you can just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter and put your email in there. And from then on forward, you'll just get it in your email done. Now, please enjoy this introduction into machine learning and how it may help us get better answers to our health challenges in the future. 
the quantified body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hey, Chris, Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. I am yeah. delighted to be here. It's a privilege and an honor. A long-time listener, so it's very exciting to be here. Yeah, likewise. Well, it's awesome, yeah, having seen you guys at various conferences over time and obviously had many discussions, it was about time. So today we're going to dive a little bit into machine learning because you guys have been playing around with that. With Chris, uh, Tommy, like, what is machine learning? Is it the same as artificial intelligence? I think, first of all, we better just give a bit of background because I think basically what people are looking at in the news and everything, you could think it's anything and maybe nothing and maybe it's the end of the world terminator style pretty soon so <laughs> so what is it really and what is it today that's a really good question yeah i, I get this sense that that people are starting to use the term machine learning like people use the term internet in 1999 you know there were there are internet companies popping up all over the place and there are machine learning companies popping up all over the place now and i think that maybe is a, a bit of a, a warning sign right that maybe there's some hype going on here and like anything else, machine learning is, is just a tool and really what you care about is the application. And so I think that's maybe an important point to note. Uh, in my mind, so I, I should make it clear that I'm a practitioner of machine learning and, and not necessarily a, an expert of, of the academic sort. And, and, and this may be important for people listening because I want to encourage people to, to take part in this activity, to, especially if you're a, a already a coder of, of, or a computer programmer of some sort. And I, I would say that um, you need to know how the, 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 the controls work. Like, so imagine you're driving a car. It's important that you understand what happens when you turn the wheel. And it's important to know what happens when you press the pedals. But you don't necessarily need to know how internal combustion works in order to drive a car. And I think the same is true of machine learning. It really doesn't need to be very, very complex unless you're going to be researching and developing new algorithms. So to answer your question specifically, machine learning in my mind is a sub-branch of artificial intelligence. And I spent most of my life writing computer programs very carefully by coding, hand coding algorithms, if then else, that type of construct that some people will be familiar with. In machine learning, I'm doing something different. So over the last three years, we've collected lots and lots of data, about 100,000 total features from about a thousand athletes. And then I've used that data to train an algorithm. So I've shown an algorithm, many, many examples of the pattern that I would like to identify in the future. And then the machine, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but the machine, it learned how to predict the patterns that I was interested in. So at no point did I ever hand code an algorithm. And I think that's what makes machine learning different from regular programming. Thanks for that overview, Chris. So what, what is artificial intelligence? Why do people kind of, I've seen a lot of the hype. I can tell you, I go to conferences now and a lot of startups are talking about adding machine learning and AI to their apps just to be a bit cooler and, you know, to attract investment and so on. So there's definitely a bit of hype around it, which I think is why it's worth talking about. In contrast to machine learning, which is what you've been doing, what is artificial intelligence? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I would rather not answer. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, it's fine. We can <laughs> we can explore it in a later podcast. This is a topic I've been fascinated with and, and digging into, and I know it's pretty complex. So, yeah, let's just skip that one, shall we? Yeah. Right, so one of the unique things about what you've done is you've applied it in the area of functional medicine, which I don't think I've seen done before. I've We've started to see a few applications for health. But what do you think, if you're looking at the area of health, where do you think it could be applied usefully just from how you've got to it? So you've done it for prediction of results. Is is that the main area you see it as useful or are there other areas which you see that it could be applicable? Oh, no. So, yeah, our application is just one tiny thing. So to give people a bit more background, we've worked with about a thousand athletes over the past three years. And the way that we've helped those people is we've uncovered the underlying root causes of the things which are holding them back from their peak performance. And we've used blood chemistry and urinary organic acids and urinary hormone testing, and then also stool microbiology, and then also PCR DNA analysis. And obviously, it's quite difficult to get some of these tests done Blood chemistry is ubiquitous, obviously, but the other tests that I talked about, they are quite difficult to get done and they're also quite expensive. And so the thing that I would like to achieve is a make it much easier to do our program. You know, can I predict the results of these tests without you doing them? And then, of course, potentially it could bring the cost down in the long run. Right. So when someone does one of our tests, Somebody in a lab somewhere is putting a sample into a machine. They're doing some mass spectrometry. Obviously, that's an expensive machine. It's taking somebody's time and that costs money. And so one of the things I think that machine learning will be able to do in medicine is reduce the cost in the long term and then provide greater access to people who perhaps might not otherwise be able to get hold of these fancy tests. Right. So it's like a, a basically a filter so that people don't necessarily have to do all of the tests. Because when we look at functional the functional medicine process today, basically a functional medicine practitioner takes your history, right? He talks to you and then he decides on an array of tests. And as, as you said, this can be uh, pretty expensive depending on how many you're going to run. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with functional medicine right now for its greater acceptance. And some people, they basically can't afford the tests that they're being told to do. So what you're saying is you've used a questionnaire that you give people and you're using the data from that to predict what the results would be in the test. Yes, exactly. So we have 53 questions which form part of our standardized health assessment questionnaire. And those questions I chose personally from a large data bank of questions that are available online for free. It's the NIH Promise, P-R-O-M-I-S, data bank of questions. And there's a whole other story that I won't get into now, but I was not feeling good in 2014. And I chose these questions based on the way that I felt. Some of them were very relevant to me and then others that I saw in the data bank, I thought, well, no, that's not really right. You know, so they'll ask you things like, I was so tired, I couldn't have a, I couldn't get out the bath, right? Or I, I couldn't even leave the house. I didn't have enough. So the sort of chronic fatigue type questions. And I was definitely feeling bad, but not that bad. And so I selectively cherry picked these questions from, from this data bank. 
And then we had a thousand athletes go through our program and it almost became a standing joke that we would see the same person and the same problems over and over and over again. And so that's what got us thinking, you know, is there some way that we could predict the results of these fancy tests using just these 53 close ended questions that you can answer in seven minutes by clicking on radio buttons? Right. So you've been giving that selection, your cherry picked, as you say, selection of questions to everyone that you've worked with over the last three years. Is exactly how, right. How so everybody that's been through the program, they've done, we've worked a bit differently, maybe from some other functional medicine providers that you've met in the past in that we always do the same set of tests. So obviously each person is unique. They have a unique history, unique situation, unique goals. But the tools that we use to identify the underlying root causes, they don't vary much from person to person. So we use the same set of tests on everyone. And then at the same time they do the tests, we have them do the health assessment questionnaire. So I always have that data for every single person that goes through our program. So that's how I was able to train the machine, right? I had the the 53 close-ended questions. And then alongside that, I have all the blood chemistry, the urinary organic acids, the Dutch test, the stool culture, the stool PCR test. So you, if you can imagine a great big spreadsheet, all of these things are in columns. And then the final thing I'm trying to predict is like, do you have circadian dysregulation or do you have gut dysbiosis or do you have a glucose tolerance problem or do you have an oxygen deliverability problem? So that's um, a higher order function that I've calculated using some of the other biomarkers which form the columns of the spreadsheet. Okay, excellent. Could you just go through the, the list of tests you use? Because we talk about tests all the time on this show. So people will be, you know, will have run into them in, in past ones and so on. So what's the blood chemistry you're running specifically? Sure. Do you want to talk about the blood chemistry, Tommy? Because it was largely you that designed that panel. Yeah. So we're obviously based in the US and most of the blood panels are run through it's run through Ulta. You do the the tests at uh, Quest Lab, and it's stuff that people will be very familiar with. So I'm a big fan of doing the basics because we know the basics work. So that includes doing the history. So everybody comes in and does the history. That's really important. That sort of gave us the basis for how we could predict some of the results, like Chris was talking about. And then the blood tests are a basic blood count an extensive thyroid panel, uh, liver function tests, uh, kidney function tests. There's calcium and parathyroidmone, vitamin D, insulin, HbA1c, fasting glucose, you know, all those things that people, basic lipids test, things that people will be familiar with that they can get from their doctor. And it's also something that even if somebody's not in the US, it's usually something they can get locally as well. So those are the real we cover those bases just because they're, we know what they mean. We know how they apply to the physiology. And then it gives us some grounding to then expand into the more, into the newer tests. Excellent. Excellent. And so the, the newer tests you're talking about are, is that the Great Plains? Generally, we do have some data from the Geneva Organics because we, you know, some people have done that too, but it's mainly the Great Plains organic acids test. Then, like Chris mentioned, we did the urinary hormones, the Dutch and then the stool tests that we're currently using are the doctor's data, a comprehensive stool analysis with parasitology and the diagnostic solutions GI map for the PCR. That's the whole panel. Right, right, great. So you've taken this data for, for everyone. And um, what you're saying is you've seen correlations which will lead to five different outcomes that you're looking for. 
five basically problems to target? Yeah, so what the machine learning particularly, and, and Chris knows more about this than I do, definitely, but what it's really good at do, doing is predicting patterns. So there's the well-known example of the algorithm that was trained to identify lung cancer on x-rays, and it was able to do that better than the best radiologists in the world. So it could, it could spot, if you give it enough x-rays, which say, this x-ray shows lung cancer, and then it learns what that looks like, and then you give it future x-rays, and then it says, okay, this is lung cancer, this isn't lung cancer, and it can do that more or better, more accurately than a human radiologist can. So this makes me think of a time Chris and I went to uh, Dale Bredesen's training course last year to learn about how he treats Alzheimer's disease. And Chris stands up and tells uh, Dale Bredesen's personal radiologist that at some point <laughs> machine learning is going to make radiologists complete, <laughs> completely irrelevant because the machines are going to be able to do all the radiology for us. So that's what machine learning is really good at. So if we give it specific patterns we want to look for, and so the ones that Chris uh, mentioned were low oxygen deliverability, that's basically just an, another word to describe lower than optimal hemoglobin, which people probably will have heard of. Then we talked about glucose intolerance. That is three different predictions actually in one group. So it's high fasting blood glucose, high HbA1c, high fasting insulin. And we obviously have tighter levels than most people would probably think of. So we're talking, you know, above 88 milligrams per deciliter of blood glucose or an, a fasting insulin above five. So that's kind of our level of, of where we'd like to see things. Mm -hmm. Then if we talk about the, the dysbioses, we're predicting things like uh, H. pylori or uh, clostridia or like a general uh, bacterial overgrowth, yeast overgrowths on the, on the oats, something like that. And that's based on the lab values that you get from, say, the Great Plains Organic Acids test. And then hormone, hormone imbalances, so that's low estrogen in females, low testosterone in males, again, based on the Dutch reference ranges, and then circadian dysregulation, which is basically having a cortisol marker outside of the normal range at a given time point during the day, again, on the Dutch, because you do at least a four point, now it can be a five point if you take a, a sample in the middle of the night. So based on all of those things, you can we can kind of drill down and the machine will tell you what the ranking of those different problems for you is so maybe glucose intolerance is the most likely issue that you have and then it will rank the other ones too and then sort of on the back end we can look at uh, the percentages and we know how accurate the machine is at predicting each individual thing have like a sensitivity and specificity for each individual one so we know how accurate it is and then what what the likely issue is and that means we can get people started very quickly because we know yep. someone's going to come to us with blood glucose dysregulation and we take a little bit more of a history we know exactly what we need to do and we don't need to do any blood tests first because we know what, what the issue is going to be we can start people very quickly without then having to have them do all the tests first yeah excellent the only one i don't think we've come across before is low oxygen deliverability uh could you give us a little bit more background on that where does it come from what type of people have it yeah basically it's based on hemoglobin and so people will have heard of hemoglobin when it comes to an anemia so if you have low hemoglobin that's the the protein in your red blood cells that carries oxygen if that's low then you're considered to be anemic it's one of the, the markers of an anemia and so people may have heard of that we have slightly higher we know what levels athletes need to be at in order to perform optimally so it's 
under 14.5 uh, grams per deciliter in males or above 14.5 grams per deciliter in males, above 13 in females. So those, those are higher cutoffs. Those don't define an anemia, but it, it defines what we'd like to get an athlete to if we can so that they can perform optimally. And so we don't call it an anemia because we're not detecting anemias. Uh, we're detecting low oxygen deliverability, which is basically your blood doesn't have as much hemoglobin as it could hopefully have, which means that you're not delivering as, as much oxygen. You don't have the capacity to deliver as much oxygen as you might like to. So the phrasing is important because we're not detecting frank anemias. We're detecting something else that we think or that we know is important for athletic performance because hemoglobin, because power output tracks very nicely with hemoglobin so if you can increase that you'll definitely increase somebody's athletic performance right right excellent and that brings us to a very important point of where your data has come from and what the focus of it is you know i understand that the data set is of people that you have is quite important you have to be quite careful with the selection and use of it why why is it that important should i take that i i, I think it's really really important i went on to the ben greenfield podcast in 2014 with another one of my doctors, Jamie, my founding medical doctor. She's a pro mountain biker. And I told this story of my health decline and then recovery and the use of some of the testing that we've talked about so far in that recovery. And that story resonated with a particular type of athlete that listens to the Ben Greenfield podcast. And they were the people that came forward to work with us. I also talked on the Rob Wolf podcast and on, from my perspective, it was difficult to identify the two different types of people. They seem to be very similar in their, their personality and their problems and their goals. All completely wonderful people. And I've had a fantastic time over the past three years. But I already mentioned that I cherry picked those questions out of this huge data bank of questions that was supposed to be for all people and all things. And so I think that the algorithms would not be particularly good at predicting the results of these tests of people that, who didn't fall into that same category. I don't know. I haven't tested this, but that is my suspicion because remember we said that machine learning was teaching a machine how to learn based on labeled examples. So when Tommy talked about the x-rays there, a real radiologist had labeled this x-ray as, oh, this one's a malignant tumor. This one's not. And in my data set, we've said, this one has low hemoglobin, this one does not. And so we've taught the machine how to learn to identify this pattern using examples. So if I then went into a completely different population of people, let's say people who only had chronic fatigue syndrome, well, they might answer something completely different to my health assessment questionnaire. And so I don't know whether I would be able to predict with the same accuracy. But I think this is something that we should experiment with. And how, when you're going into this, how can you revalidate it for the populations? Is that something that you're going to be doing on an ongoing basis or how does that work? Are you, like I imagine for some people, you're going to be collecting uh, data, test data as well, rather than simply relying on the questionnaire for everyone. So how do you see this going forward and how do you think it might work on ensuring that it's continuing to be valid or is it going to be continuing to machine learn or is it, have you basically done a cutoff based on the training it's already had? Sure. So our next steps are, so the, the analysis is already live on my website. And so I'm collecting some data already through people who are just visiting my website and seeing the analysis there and taking it. And then I've also spoken on a few different podcasts about the analysis. And for 
each podcast that I've spoken on, and I should do the same for this one, is I will provide a custom link that you can find in the show notes. And that custom link, it allows me to identify the source of the traffic. So, you know, by definition, you are a particular sort of person if you listen to the Quantify Body podcast. Right. And I think that might be important in the predictions. So the custom link, I think, is going to be really important. And it's only once I've collected a, a certain amount of data will I be able to say, this is a very strong prediction and, and maybe this is not so good. And of course, some of the people that do the analysis will go on to do the real test, right? I mean, you can get started more quickly when you do the analysis. But for now, we're still doing all of the tests. So I will, once I get back the real data, the real blood chemistry, the real urinary organic acids, all of that, I'll be able to compare what the machine predicted versus what we actually tested. Now, I'm not really expecting any surprises for some groups of people because when I was training these models, I deliberately held out 20% of our data. So I said we had data from a thousand athletes. I held out 20% of that, set it to one side, and then I only used that data once I'd finished training the models and I used that to test the models. And so that's how we know how accurate they are. Like I wouldn't be here talking about this if I didn't think the models were any good. And the reason I know they're so good is because of this held out data set. Great. And so does it give back like a correlation or, or something like that? To, did you get a number that like says, oh, this is 90% accurate with the, with the new, the last 20% you used or something like that to give you that confidence? Yeah. The, I mean, so Tommy, do you want to talk about the sensitivity and the specificity of the tests? Yeah. So people may have heard of sensitivity and specificity, which is basically a way we often use or something that we often use or calculate in medicine if we're comparing a new test to a gold standard test. This is exactly what we want to do. And it basically, the sensitivity basically tells you the likelihood that a true result that, or that a positive result is truly positive. And the specificity tells you the likelihood that a negative result is truly negative. So you want both sides of that coin because you could say that if you have 100% sensitivity, so then you'll pick up everybody who's who's going to be truly positive for that one thing. But if you don't have any specificity, then you'll have uh, loads of uh, false negatives. And it, so there are lots of ways to balance that out. So you want both to be essentially as high as possible. And we know, so we have an output from the algorithm for each individual prediction, we have a sensitivity and a specificity. So, so I'm looking at one right now. So our H pylori prediction has a hundred percent sensitivity and a 98% specificity. That's basically gold standard test. Like that's as good as doing the real test. Some of the other things are not going to be as accurate, like a bacterial um, overgrowth has a 94% specificity. So they're up there. I think the lowest one is maybe like in the 80s percent in terms of specificity. So if somebody has has a negative test, they may still, uh, if it has a negative prediction, they, you know, there's a small chance they might still have a yeast overgrowth on the actual test results. So it's really close. It's it's at the level where you could say that we're, we're close to being able to predict something as well as the test would be able to. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Just through 53 questions. I just have to say that I, I actually couldn't believe how good this was. Like, and, and Chris has run it multiple times. And so we originally we were going to do you know, test or, or predict um, uh, urine results and stool results from blood test results. Then eventually we sort of worked our way back and we got to the fact, the point where we were just using the questions 
And it's almost too good to be true, but I promise you it is actually true. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that was my original idea was I thought, oh, well, blood chemistry is ubiquitous anyone in the world has well not that's not true but most people have access to blood chemistry if you give me your cbc for example can i then predict the arabinose which is a marker of candida overgrowth on a urinary organic acid because that would still be quite cool and it turns out that does work but what works even better is just me asking you these 53 close-ended questions but one thing i'd like to point out is there's five different answers 53 different questions so I believe that is five to the power 53. It's one times 10 to the power 37 different permutations. So that's a lot of different ways to answer this health assessment questionnaire, right? It's, it's really a lot. Right. It's like this huge tree. Exactly. Of permutations, yeah, that's, that's going on there. So you're getting, you're getting people to take a lot of different paths and eventually they're coming to, to one outcome. So that's where that specificity is, is kind of coming from, from all of those right. permutations you're driving them through. Exactly. And that's exactly how this particular algorithm works. So we've used this algorithm called XGBoost, which is very popular from the machine learning website that would encourage people to visit called Kaggle. So Kaggle is a place where you can launch a competition and have the world's leading practitioners compete, usually for prize money, but not always, to solve your machine learning problem. And XGBoost, the algorithm that we use, has been a constant winner in the Kaggle space. And that is exactly how it works. It's a, a boosted decision tree. So think about what happens when you call up the electricity board, you get presented with uh, all these different options and you have to press you know, one for customer service, two for sales and all of that. And so you can see that pans out into a decision tree. And that's exactly how our XGBoost algorithm works. It's uh, a large number of these small decision trees. And it's another really interesting thing that's it's so simple, it's almost worth not talking about, and you can't believe how well it works. So each one of these small decision trees, they're slightly better than chance, right? So, you know, if I'm trying to predict the, the results of a, of a coin flip, then it gets it slightly better than chance. And it turns out that when you have thousands or even millions of these small decision trees that are slightly better than chance, and you combine them all together, you get a really strong learner that's very good at predicting things. And so that's how this algorithm XGBoost works. Right. Chris, I know you've like been going through artificial intelligence and machine learning for a few years now. I uh, just wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of your experience in this. You know, you ended up choosing this, this particular approach to it. Uh, was it easy when you jumped into it and you wanted to learn it? Because I myself have been looking at it also because it's this, this whole new world with, with potential. How have you found it? How has your journey been for it? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, so I have an undergraduate degree in computer science and I've worked my whole life for big tech companies. I'm 41 years old now and I've worked for Yahoo. They were the company that brought me from London to Sunnyvale to their headquarters. I've worked for Amazon. I've worked for a search company within Amazon. I've worked for two hedge funds and all of those companies make heavy use of machine learning and somehow the technology evaded me for the longest time. And the reason was every time I tried to get into it, I just found the subject matter so incredibly dry. So if you go and read some academic papers on some machine learning algorithm, 
typically what you encounter is an abstract or a, a, a small amount of text at the beginning of the paper that makes a lot of sense. And then you turn to page two and there's this wall of equations and you're like, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, you just put page one back on top of page two and you move it to one side and carry on hand coding your algorithm. And, and, and such has been the way with the academic computer science community that it seems to be dominated by people who are very strong in mathematics and mathematics is the language that they use to communicate. But it's not necessarily the best language for all computer scientists. And so I found some resources, other resources, very, very helpful. In particular, Jeremy Howard has been running some classes in San Francisco designed exactly for people like me. And luckily, those classes are now available online. And those were wonderfully helpful. And it turns out that Jeremy Howard is using a different sub-branch of machine learning. He's using something called deep learning, which is very, very popular at the moment. And I had tons and tons of fun. So Tommy mentioned the trying to identify the malignant tumor on an x-ray. It's a deep learning algorithm that's doing that. So it's different from what we're using. We're using XGBoost. So Jeremy is arguably more state of the art, but it's solving different types of problems. So deep learning is better at solving these computer vision problems, but other things too. And so those courses, I think, were absolutely fantastic. That was what allowed me to get past this wall of mathematics and become a machine learning practitioner. Excellent. Thank you for going in for that, because I think it would be amazing if more people were starting to apply this to health and functional medicine. And there's a lot of listeners on this show, entrepreneurs, VCs, and all sorts of types who might find it a little bit easier and more approachable knowing that there's ways around that. So all good. I've, another thing I wanted to do on this podcast is kind of take the people listening through a practical walkthrough of how it's being used. So people are going to like click on this link and, and go to the page where it is. And then what happens? Uh, sure. So I've tried to do, I'm a very uh, visual person. I like to learn with audio and, and, and visual stuff. And so I've paid someone to make some whiteboard explainer videos because obviously this stuff is complex. So I have, there's a video, if you come to the show notes, you can see the video, the whiteboard explainer video that hopefully summarizes some of the things that we've been talking about and explains how this thing works. And then as you go through the analysis, it's really quite simple to do. All you do is you click on radio buttons and answer the question. So I'm going to ask you things like, in the past seven days, I felt tired. And then the answers will be something like, always, sometimes, never. I can't remember the five different permutations, but you just answer the questions honestly. And they're grouped into subcategories that you'll recognize. And anyone who's spent any amount of time not feeling good will, will recognize these questions intimately, I'm sure. And, uh, and that's it, really. You just walk through seven minutes and then at the end, you're presented with the results, which, as Tommy alluded to slightly there earlier, is that we don't we don't give you the output of the model because it's kind of confusing. Like you need to know quite a lot about how the model is made in order to interpret the output. It's actually talking in probabilities, which are quite difficult to understand. So the model's going to say whether it thinks that you probably do match the criteria or you probably don't. So it's mostly a binary classification. So, so you just uh, highlight that point. Basically, as, as Tommy was saying earlier, it's going to highlight whether you're in a specific range on one of the tests. Is, is that the output for you guys? It's going to say, you know, there's this risk of H. pylori, for example. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the models, the gut dysbiosis model, for example, is a composite of the H. pylori prediction, 
gut dysbiosis, uh, the bacterial overgrowth, yeast overgrowth. So we just lump all of those things together and call it gut dysbiosis. And so if the model thinks that any one of those things is true, then it's going to predict a, a binary classification for the most part. But what the user sees, we went through, we kind of argued about it, not argued, but we debated it for a while about what we should show the user. And in the end, what we went for was just a rank, right? So what you see on the results page is, is the things that the model thinks are most important for you, because it's kind of hard to interpret the output of the model, this, this probability in a, as a percentage. Right. So I went through it myself and you, you have the display of the five areas and then it looks like a percentage basically, right? Yeah. So that's the, that's the number that in the end we decided to, to hide from the user because it was confusing. And so we can still see it on the back end, but for the user now what they're seeing is just the rank of things. So these are like the order of importance in, of the five different uh, categories. Damien, you did a slightly early version where you could still see the percentages, but oh, um, okay. it eventually turned out that that was becoming kind of confusing. So we thought that people could just focus on what the most important thing is, and that's what we—that's how most how how people will then follow up through the system. But we have obviously all of the data to help I them see. do that. I see. So it's just going to highlight one of the items that is the most important to look into. For example, oxygen, like low oxygen deliverability, is the thing you should focus on. Is that the point? Yeah. Well, you'll get your ranking for all five, like the order okay. of importance for all five. So, you, so but your number one thing is what the rest of, so you, you'll get some follow-up that Chris can tell you about, and that will be based on your number, whatever was ranked number one. Yep. Okay. Right. Yep. Got it. That's the use of a tool, really helping people to focus on the area. I mean, I used to talk about like DNA tests, like 23andMe as something useful to help you to focus on things. It's not entirely accurate. doesn't give you, you know, like a di diagnosis or anything, but using it as a strategic filter to say, there's a lot of things popping up in uh, lung cancer risk in my, in my genetics. I should probably have a bit of a deeper look into that. So it sounds like you're kind of proposing this to be used the same way, basically a strategic device to, you know, look at, oh, where should I focus my efforts and have a look more into it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Great. Great. And have you got any like case studies of people who've used it already? Anything that's kind of come out of it since you've been playing around with it? No, it's totally brand new. In fact, just this morning, I've just signed up our first client who is a British guy living in Spain. And so it's not, I mean, it's, he, he could do it. It's still possible to get the test done, but it's mm. not easy. Right. So... It's impossible in Spain. It's really, really hard. I, <laughs> when I lived in Spain, I ended up moving to the US. I got so frustrated. I was getting an MRI done and they gave me just like the, the results were all wrong. And I was just like, I'm done. I'm out of here. And I left. <laughs> well, it, was just, it was the end. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we, we normally do. So we do have clients from all over the world. And that's what we normally say is like, can you come to the US? And for most of the athletes that we work with, they can. So if you're an Ironman triathlete, for example, there's a good chance you're going to want to come to the US and do a race. And when you do the race, you can just you know, stay in a hotel or an Airbnb, whatever it is. And then you can do all of the tests either at home or you can just take a trip to, to Quest and, and get the blood drawn there. Right. So, so for this guy in, in Spain, I didn't show him... The, the exact output of the models, as we discussed previously, but when I looked on the back end, the models were really, really confident about several things, which I know how to fix right away. 
Well, so it'd be interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see that see how that goes. But it's, exactly. it's incredibly good use case because so many people struggle with tests outside of the US. Right, uh, right. It's, it's getting a little bit better in the, in the UK now. And there's some guys called Regenerous Labs who are doing a, a fair number of the functional medicine and other tests now by post, and they they handle that. But overall, it's still still really complicated, and I'm constantly getting questions about it. This sounds like a really useful use case for it for people who are also, you know, in Europe or even Asia and places like this where they can't get their hands on the tests in the first place. This is a really important part of the process, right? Which is that we now, we think we can predict things with a very high degree of accuracy, but how well can we treat those things when we don't have the full set of data? And we're very confident that we can, uh, but the only way you can find out is to actually do it. So with, particularly with people who fit very nicely into the, into the group that we use to train the data. So just more of the same kind of client that we're used to work working with and we get very good results with, that's the ideal sort of test bed. Um, and then we can can show that we can really do what we think we can. Yeah, yeah. It'd be really interesting to have you guys like a few months or whatever down the line once you've uh, run it for a while, got some test results and some experience and so on. And maybe it sounds like basically trial and error. You'll just put someone through a program, say they're living in Spain, and um, if it fixes him, you're like, okay, that worked. <laughs> you know, that's that's a that's a good data point for the model. Yeah, and maybe and maybe we're just doing what Voltaire said, which is that we're just entertaining the patient enough while nature cures <laughs> the disease. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it would be great. Yeah. But in, no, no. In, in reality, I think um, we know how we would approach each of those different things. So when we've got a model that predicts something with, with a very high degree of certainty, then the likelihood that this person will see benefit based on what we suggest based on the algorithm is, you know, is really, really good. And we should talk about some of the interventions as well, because yeah. I, I think that's important. It's not like we're predicting predicting things and then asking people to take drugs that may have unwanted effects. Right. We're talking about lifestyle medicine here. So, so let's say the model predicted that you had a glucose intolerance problem well, I can coach you and my wife can coach you and any one of my coaches can coach you with how you can improve your glucose tolerance. So you can do things like time-restricted eating where you only eat during daylight hours. That can improve glucose tolerance. Or you can move your body ball. Maybe you can do some whole body resistance training that's going to create a a intracellular glucose deficit and make the glucose that's in your blood go into cells more easily and maybe that would improve your glucose tolerance so this is do you see what i'm saying it's like it's mostly diet and lifestyle interventions it's really low risk so really low risk very right, low yeah. risk right. i'm guessing the most the ones where we get closest to actually some kind of medicine a gut some symbiosis where you're using but you guys are using herbals and, and probiotics and things like that primarily aren't you it, exactly so for example there's tea, there's a Matula tea, there's a company on the internet that guarantees you that it gets rid of H. pylori. And it's very expensive, but they give you your money back if you if you send them a test and you've still got the bug. And there's other things like broccoli sprouts, sulfurophane, that people can either grow at home or just grind up the seeds. And that may help with eradicating an H. pylori infection. So fairly low risk compared to, say, taking antibiotics, I would say. I thought we'd take a little bit of a big picture look at this machine learning, you know, having gone through this experience for yourselves, how transformative do you think machine learning could be or or will not be for that matter for health over the next 10 years? And, and given the examples you've seen, like I, I know, Chris, you've been to conferences and stuff and seen some examples as well. What do you think the power of this is or not? 
Oh yeah, I mean it's it's going to completely revolutionize everything, I think, almost everything. You know, anything and it's interesting that that some of the jobs that I think are going to go are the white collar jobs, right? So I know this from talking to Pedro Dominguez has been on my podcast mm. and I would highly recommend his book The Master Algorithm where he talks obviously in detail about this, but it's the white collar jobs, right? So anything where you're doing something over and over again that doesn't really require any manual movement. So, you know, some people I think mistakenly believe it's the it's the the workers that are going to go, right? They're all going to be replaced by robots. But that's not true. When you look at say the skills of somebody building a house, those skills they're using, those the the motor skills and the dexterity, that took millions of years to evolve those and computers haven't got there yet. Whereas identifying a malignant tumor on a on an x-ray, right? That's a just a pattern recognition thing that computers have already learned how to do. So if you're laying bricks and mortar for a living, I think your job is safe. If you are a lawyer or a radiologist or somebody who issues issues patents, then I'm I'm not so sure. I'm right, not so sure your right, job is yeah, safe, yeah. right? right, it's really right. I was I was reading a case study on JP Morgan and um they were talking about deals like mergers and acquisitions and stuff and it was taking hundreds of thousands of hours of lawyer work before. Now it's being done by a computer in a day. There's one thing we discuss a lot sort of on the back end. We I mean we're in basically Slack discussing things pretty much continuously and one thing that comes up a lot is particularly as it relates to health is that the machine is only going to be as good as the person who's training it right and the way that they train it so if you think about i was reading something recently about how ibm's watson in health hasn't produced as much or as fast as they thought it would and i wonder if or we wonder if part of the problem is the fact that you're still you're taking traditional medicine approaches and then just trying to add machine learning on top and as we know the current approaches we have to chronic diseases or cancer isn't necessarily the right one, then it's not really getting us anywhere as fast as we as we originally hoped, uh, because we're still working around an acute care system for chronic diseases. So there's definitely a possibility that until we keep trying and failing this in various different arenas, that that just like we're just going to get the same wrong answers, but we're just yeah. going to get them faster. Right, and that I think Chris, you brought this up in an email that it's sometimes the the system that we have is focusing on one marker. Or it's you know it's it's focusing on that one diagnosis driven by one one single input to that you know there's one reason why you get sick. Whereas you know in the world of functional medicine we're looking at a multifactorial, multi-complex. Everyone's kind of different with different inputs to the problem situation. And from what I've seen from machine learning, it, it could be the answer to this because it will just look at all the data and it'll say, hey, there's, there's if you look at these five things and you look at how how they vary, you get these different situations where. Whereas I guess the limitation of our human brains is we tend to focus on one thing and we're just trying to say like this leads to that and it's a linear fashion. and Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, a really good example, actually. You think about my analysis, like most people can hold it in their working memory that maybe gas, bloating and diarrhea might be related to gut dysbiosis. And, you, you, you know, a practitioner can hold that in their working memory. But what about all the, these 50 other questions, right? Like maybe you can't go for a very long time without eating. And that is a sign of gut dysbiosis. Like how many of these things can you hold in working memory at once? It's really, really complex. But here's the thing. When I went to a conference 
last autumn, the Artificial Intelligence in Medicine conference down at Dana Point, which was overall was very good. I enjoyed my, my, my experience there. And they were taking questions at one point. And I asked the question, could we use deep learning to uncover the root causes of chronic disease? And the, the commentator, he turned to the panel and he said, what do you think? Do you, do you think we really need to understand the root causes? Or is it, ju is it just enough to be able to, to diagnose the problem? Because once we have the diagnosis, then there's the treatment, right? So huh. do we really need to understand the root causes? And I, was, I just like put my head in my hands. You know, I'm like, <laughs> it's just, so it, it's frightening because machine learning, obviously it's so very powerful. But like Tommy said, it's just a tool. And you still have to understand how to use the tool in the most effective right. way in order to get the result that you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, absolutely. A lot is going on in the world of health, right? Conventional medicine is starting to use big data and train algorithms and so on. But there's not a lot going on in functional medicine, you know, which is what the area and the you know conferences which we explore more because it's related to the origins of problems and so on. Have right. you seen any other examples of people trying to apply some kind of machine learning. It'd be something that I'd really love to see more of. I've been thinking about it for a little while. That's why, you know, when you guys told me about this, I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, so maybe part of the problem is that everybody thinks that they need big data, right? So when I was listening to some of these talks that were presented at this conference last year, there were hospitals there who were doing 16 million blood tests per month. Wow. Right. That's probably more than Nourish Balance Thrive will ever do in our in our lifetime, I think. And so that truly is big data. But I think we've been able to do something really good without actually having big data. We've only had data from a thousand athletes. So maybe this idea of big data, it needs to go away. Right. Perhaps we don't need big data. We just you know, each individual practitioner, they already have enough data in order right. to do something useful. Well, yeah. And especially the ones that have been practicing for 10 years, which is, you know, there's many of those. Oh, yeah. um, they've got a ton of data. I think that's what's one of their biggest attributes. They have this asset of data they're sitting on from past patients. How much data is necessary then? Did you just try this and it worked out? And or do you think it's because you're focusing on a niche and there was a good correlation, a tight correlation between the people? And maybe that's why it worked out versus, you know, if we do these population studies, I think the view is it, c it can be a bit all over the place. So it can be harder to see those, those patterns potentially. Mm, yeah. So I, I think, well, so we only had, um, you know, 100,000 total features, which is really quite a small data set. But there's no reason why we can't keep these these data sets separate for specific populations. So let's say, you know, Mark Hyman wants to train models based on, on his data set. And then Chris Kresser is over here and he sees a lot of thyroid patients. So maybe he wants to train on his specific data set. But you could still use the same code base and you could still use the same algorithms. And with the particular model that I've used, XGBoost, it doesn't take that much compute resources in order to train the models. So this is in stark contrast to deep learning, for example, where really it's not possible to do much on your laptop. You really have to spin up an S3 instance, so a cloud computer with lots of fancy hardware, probably made by NVIDIA, that will allow you to do the, the training of these algorithms. So it's computationally very expensive. That's not true of the algorithms I've used. So there's no reason why that people couldn't just run separate instances of, of the algorithms on their own personal data sets. Great, great. It's, that's great to hear. I hope, this, uh, I hope this episode inspires a few more people to look into this. Are there any specific areas you think it should be applied to beyond your app or where you think it's going to be more exciting? 
Hmm, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know if I've got any good answers. Yeah, so, I mean, certainly I want to... So we talked about how there's so much complexity in the root causes that are causing chronic illness, right? So, you know, Tommy has a really good talk that he did on the underlying root causes of insulin resistance. And it's tempting to believe that the only thing that causes that are... Uh, refined carbohydrates. And that's technically true. They maybe do cause insulin resistance, but then there's uh, endotoxins in the gut and there's circadian dysregulation and there's loneliness and there's stress of other types. You know, there's all these different things. And I feel like it's going to be almost infinitely complex. And so what we really need is some kind of algorithm that can really uncover all of these root causes, keep everything in working memory at once and, and figure this out in a way that no human ever could. I think that Tommy has done a better job on insulin resistance than any other human I've met so far, and that includes all the people I've interviewed on my podcast. But I have a feeling that a computer might do even better should someone choose to sit down and apply one in that area. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that feedback. I think the idea of complexity, uh, where it's complex, I think functional medicine is actually an area where they're dealing with some of the most complex problems you look at things like Lyme disease, where there's, of course, a ton of controversy because it's so complex. People like say it doesn't exist. It exists. You know, I'd love to see this kind of thing applied to those areas where to, to finally bring some clarity to it. Say, look, this is what the machine's coming up with based on just data to get past all the opinion and everything, which seems to kind of cloud cloud these types of areas. And chronic fatigue syndrome you brought up earlier is another another kind of one of these dubious areas where. Yes, yeah, it's a death by a thousand cuts, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So is there anything we've missed that's important about your your thinking on this subject or your application and what it's doing currently? The only thing I wanted to, another example that I saw, which I thought was a bad use of this technology, was there's a paper that came out of um, the DeepMind group, which is now part of Google. And they did something astonishingly clever. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. They took a million, a million hands-labeled images of diabetic retinopathy. So this is damage done to the eye through high blood glucose. And they created a learning algorithm that would predict diabetic retinopathy better than a human could. And so it's like kind of all, well, that's amazing, isn't it? That's absolutely brilliant. But then you realize that had the person whose retina was being scanned done an oral glucose tolerance test with insulin 20 years previous, they maybe could have altered their eating patterns, the food they're eating, when they're eating it, their movement patterns, exercise, and then potentially we could have saved their eyesight, which I think is a much greater win than being able to diagnose them with diabetic retinopathy 20 years later. Right. right. So I just kind of, I really wanted people to know about some of the uses and abuses of this type of yeah. technology. Yeah. So it's a question of like, you know, thinking about where the greatest impact is going to be had rather than, and also there's this question of trying to diagnose the end conditions rather than trying to proactively tackle the problem for the future. It's just, it's just that mindset switch, which I, you know, I don't know if it's uh, lobbying philosophy or how eventually that mindset switch is going to, is going to take hold seems to just be an ingrained ingrained in the education system, I guess, in the systems and everything and the process people are taught on how to approach problems. Yeah, it's medicine's a, a funny, a, a really funny beast. And initially when I started Nourish Balance Thrive, I thought the medicine was broken 
And then more recently, I've come to understand that medicine is not broken at all. It's doing exactly what we designed it to do, which is treat acute and episodic illness. So if you get hit by a bus or you get a, an infection, then medicine's really, really good at treating that for the most part. Where it really falls down is with these diseases of modernity, like diabetes or obesity. There's really not, di medicine is just not designed to solve those types of problems. And so we need something completely different. And, you know, that is what the Nourish, Balance, Thrive program is, is now we've got a machine learning algorithm that will identify the problem sooner and more easily. But the solution remains the same, right? You need to, you need to move your body. You need to eat appropriately. You need to handle stress appropriately, all those things. So it's really, I think, I'm hoping that it's going to, by doing the, the cheap and easy diagnosis sooner, it's going to bring people's attention to the real problems more easily and sooner. And so they can rectify them before it really becomes a, a chronic disease. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. As you were talking about the system there, I was thinking basically it's the same problem we have from machine learning. We have really on a society level, right? If medicine's focus or any organization's focus is on something else, it doesn't matter what you put into it. It's not going to get the ideal outcome. Just like with the machine learning programs, right? If you set it on the wrong task or the, or the wrong focus, oh, yeah. it's going get to get the wrong result. And, yeah. you know, the more yeah. money you put into it, the worse it'll get. Yeah, so it's interesting like that. Uh, maybe it's just mimicking humans. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. It's a really good point that you bring up. So especially with the, the deep learning algorithms, the deep, it's a deep convolutional neural network. It is a model of what happens inside of the human skull. Literally, that's how it works. So... Yeah, I mean, if you set it about set it on the wrong task, it's going to get the same wrong answer that humans did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so where should someone look first to learn more about this? Are there any good books or presentations on a subject? You've mentioned a couple of resources already. Are there any others? No, I don't think so. Those are, those are my definitely my two favorite things are the Master Algorithm by Pedro Dominguez, and it was Pedro when he came on my podcast. He said, "Oh, you should use XGBoost for that." And I said, okay, until then, I've been trying to use deep learning to solve my problem, not really getting very far. And then Pedro said that one word. I was like, okay. And he was right. Absolutely amazing book. I absolutely love that book, The Master Algorithm. And then check out fast.ai, which is Jeremy Howard's website, where he's teaching these online courses in deep learning. And even though I just said that deep learning turned out to not be the algorithm that was best for me. Jeremy is an amazing practitioner that will teach you all of the skills that you need in order to become a machine learning practitioner of any type. So even if you end up using XGBoost or some other algorithm, you're still going to need all these other tools that sit around the periphery that will be very valuable no matter what algorithm you use. So that's at fast.ai. Excellent. Just to clarify there, if you have no programming background, is this still something you could look into and, and learn more about it and it would be useful, do you think? I would like to say yes, that learning how to program shouldn't be much more difficult than learning how to speak. Like it's really getting that easy. Python is the programming language that I use and I really don't think it's that hard. You know, you can read it just like you can read English. It's not, it's not obfuscated in any way. Having said that, Jeremy Howard's course is designed to teach machine learning to people who can already code. But I know that some of the people on his classes, they, they, did, they were coming from a background that was completely different, like maybe mathematics, for example. So that maybe they didn't have any ability to code. But if, you, if you're smart, you're going to be able to solve this. Like learning is the only skill that really matters. Cool, cool. 
What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? You, you and Tommy's work at Nourish Balance Thrive. Are you on Twitter? You got a podcast, Facebook? Where are you most active? Sure. So what I would really like people to do is come to Damien's show notes and use the custom link and do the seven minute analysis. And then once you've done the analysis, I'm going to follow up on email and send you links to my best podcast episodes on some of the problems that we found, right? So, you know, Tommy has done some fantastic interviews all over the internet. Like even I have trouble keeping track of them all. And so we sat down and thought, okay, so which are the best things on glucose intolerance? And so you're going to get an email with links to our very best stuff. I do have my own podcast, the Nourish Balance Thrive podcast. But yeah, I would encourage people, you do fantastic show notes, Damien. You've done, you do the best show notes I've ever seen on the internet. They're amazing. So if people are listening and they've never seen Damien's show notes, they should definitely come and check those out. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. And <laughs> of course, everything you've mentioned in the whole show will be on those show notes as usual. So yeah, thanks. Who besides yourself would you recommend to learn about machine learning or just functional medicine you know, on your journey? Because I know we've been in the same space. Who do you recommend to check out their work? That's a really good question. I think my favorite person, the guy that's been most influential to me is Brian Walsh. Brian Walsh is a naturopathic doctor from Maryland. And if you search online, like this is like a hidden gem on the internet. Nobody knows about this. Like there's his videos on YouTube. They, some of them still only have a thousand views. And I swear most of them are me. So if you search for Brian Walsh, Wellness FX, which is the blood testing company you've probably heard of, you'll find these videos on YouTube and they are amazing. No one teaches blood chemistry interpretation like Brian Walsh. Brian also has a biochemistry training course for health and fitness professionals called Metabolic Fitness Pro. And I have, by the way, I have no financial affiliation with any of this stuff. This is just someone that's been really, really helpful to me in, in learning over the years. And Brian is now on the road teaching weekend seminars on how to do blood chemistry interpretation. So yeah, he's the, I've done a whole bunch of training courses. I've done FDN, I've done Kalish, I've done other things. And, and really Brian's stuff I've, is, is by far the best for me. Excellent. Yeah, I've seen some great stuff with him looking at cortisol dysregulation and adrenal fatigue, if it exists or not. Yeah, and, and the, things the like artist that. formerly knows. Yeah, exactly. The artist formerly known as adrenal fatigue. I think that, right. that Brian has been been talking about how that's nonsense since, I don't know, at least five years, probably probably longer. And he did a really good interview with Rob Wolf uh, yeah, that about this. Great. Yeah. yeah, really, really good. I love Brian. He's, he's, he's been really helpful to me. Great, great. F thanks for that. So I'd love to get to know you a little bit more as well, just in terms of what you actually do to improve your body and how you use tracking today. Do you track any metrics or biomarkers for your own body on a routine basis? And if you do, why? Well, I still do all of the testing that we talked about. I was at the, at the lab yesterday getting the blood panel that Tommy Design done. And I still do urinary organic acids. I still do stool testing. You know, I said that I ran into some health problems a few years ago. When I did the stool testing, I found a pinworm infection. I found a raging yeast overgrowth. I had almost certainly what most people would call SIBO, although I never did the breath test. I had a, a belly like a basketball, you know, where I'm still quite lean, but for some reason I look like I'm six months pregnant. <laughs> and so those tests, they were really helpful in un uncovering the root causes of my health problems. And I took a whole bunch of botanical herbs to solve those issues and that worked really well. So I still do all of that type of testing. In terms of you know, tracking things on a, on a daily basis, in the end, I found it more helpful 
to track the behavior that leads to the desired outcome. And I can explain that with an example. So I know that I don't walk enough. That was one of my problems. I'm a mountain biker. And so I pedal lots and lots and I sit lots and lots uh, when I'm working, but I don't really walk around too much. And the reason I didn't used to walk around too much was because I found it boring, really, really boring. And so I th my first thought was, that, oh, I'll get a Fitbit and then I'll track the number of steps I'm taking each day. And that was horrifying. I was doing 400 steps a day or something on some wow. days, you know, working from home, really, really low. And in the end, the solution was not Fitbit. It was to get a dog. And so a few months ago, we got a dog and I apologize. It barked earlier and I had to kick it out of the room. But, so not so great for podcasting, but great for walking. So now I walk at least an hour a day and I really enjoy it. It's really fun. So, you know, maybe sometimes the answer is not to, to track the number of steps or track whatever it is that you're interested in, but instead insert some interrupt into your life that's going to lead to the behavior change that gets the desired outcome. Yeah, that's really clever, changing your environment like that. Definitely one of the most effective things I've found is changing your environment. So you've had a lot of insights and it sounds like you've made a lot of changes over time. Are there any other more recent changes, you've things that you're, you're thinking about based on any of these things that you've tracked or that have come up? Or are you basically optimized now and you're quite happy? I am very happy, actually, I have to admit. And I, I have worried that, so one of the reasons I've been so good at doing, I say so good, I, so people have told me I'm quite good at doing the podcast and then also the client calls is because I was like so able to relate to the other person's specific situation because I'd also been through that same situation. And I'm worried that I'm losing that now. Right. But, you know, I, I can do continue to think about it. Maybe there's something I'm missing. But one of the things I, I, I advocate is that it, it's, it's really not that hard, right? There's not that many things to think about. You know, diet, which you've talked a lot about on the podcast, there's appropriate management of stress. So you're never going to get away from stress, but you need some way to appropriately manage it. Whatever you do, don't be lonely. That's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And, and just because you live in London doesn't mean you're not lonely, right? It's perfectly easy to be, to be yeah. lonely, even though you well, live in Well, especially with all our city. devices these days, I think exactly. a lot of people choose that route rather than... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So these, so these real relationships are being replaced by Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of this stuff. And, th and then what else is there? There's movement, appropriate movement. So you need to walk, I think. And then you need to occasionally lift heavy things and maybe sprint. And that's really about all there is to it. You know, it's not that complicated. It's, or at least it didn't take me long to say it. Yeah, excellent. If you were to recommend just one experiment that someone should try to improve their body, and it could be to improve health, performance, longevity, whatever they're after, or whatever you think is most important, with the biggest payoff, what would that be? Definitely monitoring blood glucose without a question. Okay, is that with, is that with a CGM or a blood meter? Like, how should they do that and... How to yeah, so I think, um, so most people are not going to have access to the CGM. I have worn one personally, and I got that. Somebody sent me one from New Zealand. So I'm in Santa Cruz in California, and I believe that you still need a prescription from a doctor to get one, which is unfortunate. And I'm sure that will change in the future. Somebody sent me one from New Zealand, and I did learn a couple of things. The first was that when I walk, my blood glucose goes down quite surprisingly rapidly, even working, even walking with a three-year-old girl. So most people think, oh, that's not even, that's nothing. Like that's not enough exercise to have any impact on anything, but it turns out that it is. And so I could prevent postprandial glucose spikes 
just by going for a walk with my three-year-old daughter, which was, and I never would have known that without the continuous monitor, right? Because you can't, you just wouldn't know to stick your finger to see that it's happening. And then the other thing I found out from the CGM was that intense exercise really, really raises my blood glucose. Like I have, I don't know whether it's cortisol or what I've not measured. I haven't done continuous cortisol monitoring, but when I do intense exercise, I can get my blood glucose up to 180 milligrams per deciliter, no trouble at all. So, you know, that kind of makes you aware of the fact it's not just the food that you put in your mouth that can raise blood glucose, but the place to start. Yeah. yeah. So the place to start is um, with a finger stick test, right? That everybody has access to. You can go to your local drugstore anywhere in the world and pick up one of these finger stick tests that I know you've talked about on the podcast before, and then just check your blood glucose first thing in the morning. And our optimal evidence-based reference range for fasting blood glucose is 83 to 88 milligrams per deciliter. So that's what one of our models is, is trying to predict being out of range. And, and so that's where I think you should be. And that's where I am now. It took me a while to get there, but I am in that. Is that throughout range. the day so they can check it at any time away from food or? No, activity? yeah. So um, I'm not sure. So I wouldn't want to see excursions too far out of that reference range. You know, once you go above 120, it like becomes questionable whether you're doing yourself any good. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some excursions. If you're eating any carbohydrate at all, then it's going to go, you know, above 100, I would, I would expect. But uh, I think the fasting value is really interesting uh, because we have some epidemiological data that shows uh, hazard ratios go up significantly once you get above or below, actually, that 83 to 88 milligrams per deciliter in, in fasting blood glucose. Right. So is that first thing in the morning then? Exactly. So as soon as you get up, you, you stick your finger before you've you know had a chance to move around too much or eat anything. Yeah, I do think sometimes that's a tricky one for some people like me, because, you know, with my CGM, I've seen over time, like pr- really quickly after I wake up, I start to get a rise from cortisol. Uh, OK. And so it's, it's always made me wonder about, you know, I've been going for it to get my my bloods fasting glucose for years and I didn't necessarily didn't necessarily come back ideal. But then if I look at the whole day, like I'm basically in the optimum range all the time and there's just this one little spike when I wake up in the morning. And I think I do have some cortisol dysregulation, but I think it's relatively common as well. Just on your exercise thing you were talking about, maybe have a little bit of one little bit of information for you there. Um, I've been testing the Wim Hof method recently. Oh, yeah. Which I am involves... familiar. I've tried it. Have you? Oh, cool. How are you yes. finding it? Um, it's hyperventilating and it made my face yeah. tingle and I felt kind of funny and I could see that it was doing something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about it. <laughs> right. So, so I've, been, I've been through the whole program and taking it pretty seriously. Uh, okay. Actually helping me with some things, which I'll, you know, cover in a later episode. But um, I've tracked it extensively as well with CGM and things like that. And the breathing, the hyperventilation, whacks up your blood sugar. Right. Every every single time. Yeah. With a cortisol response. So it makes you wonder if uh, when we get an uh, exercise response, is that due to the breathing? You know, because when we're exercising hard, we're actually breathing really hard as well. Or is it the actual exercise as the actual trigger? It's a hormetic stressor is what it is. It has to be. Right. So your brain, some part of your brain thinks that you're being chased by a tiger And so it's trying to liberate energy. It's trying to liquidate your assets. Let's just get some glucose moving. I bet if you were to measure uh, blood levels of uh, fatty acids, you'd see the same thing, right? Like that energy is going up too. So you're just liberating your assets so that you can escape from whatever this danger is. But your 
your brain doesn't know that it's not really a tiger that's chasing you. You're just doing the Wim Hof thing. But eventually it leads to you getting stronger. So the same thing happens when I do kettlebell swings or if I go in the sauna or if I ride my mountain bike for long enough. And so it's, it's a hormetic stressor. Eventually, hopefully, you get stronger. You do feel it as well when you first start. You feel this slight anxiety when you're doing the hyperventilation. And that, over time, that goes away, So that, which fits with your explanation there as well. But anyway, just going back to your fasting glucose thing, there is that slight variation you have to be aware of. But overall, you know, still that the morning is probably the best time. Is that what you'd advise? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah, it's overall stability that you're probably shooting for, right? So just because you see, maybe you're eating a ketogenic diet and we nearly always see elevated fasting blood glucose with someone who's been eating a, a, a ketogenic diet for a while. But does it mean anything anymore based on my evidence-based reference range? Because that's epidemiological data. And you can bet your bottom dollar that those people that were in that data set were not eating a ketogenic diet. So at that point, all bets are off. Right. So, uh, you know, for the ketogenic dieter, they're still achieving overall stability, which may be the most important thing. Right. Chris, it's been a really interesting episode. Thanks for all your thoughts and for building your little tool here, which is a great first in functional medicine, I think. So, you know, congrats on that. And, you know, I'll, of course, I'll give the uh, link and everything to and everything in the show notes for everyone to follow up with. And it'll be interesting to see what everyone gets from it. Yeah, I'm very excited to know what people think. If you think I'm an idiot and I should stop doing this, please tell me because otherwise I won't know. <laughs> Great, Chris. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Damien. Hey there. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and remember to tweet to me at dblinkinsop, D-B-L-E-N-K-I-N-S-O-P-P. What a crazy name. Uh, whichever topics or guests you'd like me to cover in a episode soon. And to check out Chris and Tommy's machine learning tool, in case you missed the URL, you can just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash machine test. And as a reminder, the point of this is to see which of the five performance inhibitors it recommends you focus on and potentially get tested for in the future. That's thequantifiedbody.net forward slash machine test. See you soon. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.